Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus sir i'm detecting a subspace message i'll put it on speakers Subspace, dare to wander. The Intrepid Radio Program with Scotty Roberts. Intelligent Talk. Hey folks, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Scotty Roberts. And this is my show, The Intrepid Radio Program, right here on Subspace Odyssey Radio, where you can hear this show uh, every time we broadcast it in audio format only over on the radio station. That's over at odysseyradio.com. Odyssey spelled O-D-Y-S-Y radio.com. So you can go on over there, hear us in audio. You can hear all the archives over there. You can also join us, as many of you are, over on my YouTube for the simulcast in video. You can also, and that's at uh, youtube.com slash Scotty Roberts. And you can join the chat room there, the public chat room. And you can also join us over on my Patreon. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Scotty Roberts. You can come on over there and watch the show there as well. The Patreon is there for one reason, and that is to give you an opportunity to help be a patron of this show. And uh, <clears throat> so I appreciate everybody who is one over there now. And if we get that built up enough, we'll be able to do some pretty cool things with this program. So go check it out and check out the episodes that are up over there. And over on my YouTube, remember, there's almost 1,200 episodes, 1,200 episodes of this show over on my YouTube channel. You can check them out, watch them at your leisure. And uh, so I want to thank everybody for being here. Randall Flagg, good to see you. Pearson Castile, good to see you, brother. Glad you both are in the chat room, uh, showing your uh, faces in the chat room, as it were. And anybody else who's listening, you can come over into the chat room, too. You can share your thoughts with each other. And if we go into the captain's cabin too deeply tonight, there will be an opportunity for you to call in and to talk with us. And I've got, are you just going to be my audience over there tonight? Or, oh, I'm doing radio from nine to 10 every night. How important is it? This is familial interruption. Dead people. What about dead people? Yeah. Well, come over here. 
So what happened? This is my daughter, Rowan. So my 11-year-old. So what happened now? Uh, so there was a lot of lights and sirens and stuff going past our houses and our mom's friend's houses. And yep, my friend's we hear all the sirens and things, yeah. And so me and mom got on the scanner. Small town sirens, nonetheless. Yeah, me and mom got on the scanner, and then we realized there was Somerset police and fire and EMS. And then they were also sending out New Richmond people, too. And they sent out helicopters. There was a giant wow. ATV and car crash coming off the ramp that we used to get to Wow. Richmond. An ATV? Yeah. It's an all-terrain vehicle? A four-wheeler? Yeah. Oh. And so, you, what did you hear? There's been deaths associated with that? Well, someone was airlifted, so they're probably going to die. Oh, well, not necessarily. They don't just, airlifting isn't a, isn't a immediately, an immediately ringtone of death. Yeah, but that's usually what happens. People oh. People get airlifted and then they. I, I think people get airlifted and they wouldn't do it if they all died. So there'll probably be some survivors. That's what we hope. Well, thanks for the update. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm glad. I love you. Bye. Love you, bye. All right. There's your latest, your latest traffic news from Somerset, Wisconsin. And uh, she said it's important. Um, I don't want to be seem cold or callous, but I hope it's not anybody I, I know. Other than that, it's small town stuff. Uh, so. Uh, um that's the latest she was just sitting out there in the chair off to the left here and uh so and uh, do you do you want to say something <laughs> so there we go uh so anyway back to the show welcome everybody uh to the program tonight let's wish our best for whoever was in the big accident we heard all, heard all kinds of sirens going off so, and going by the main street at the end of our road. So, uh, um, hopefully everything's going to be fine there. And if I don't know who it is, I said, I hope it's nobody I know. Somebody knows them. Somebody loves them. So hopefully there's, there's not a bigger problem than, uh, uh, what we've heard so far tonight. <clears throat> I want to talk about a big problem in the country and, we could go through all the niceties of the beginning of the show and all the different things we can do in the different places you can go. You can see the scroll bar down below of uh, all the things you can go see from Intre uh, the Intrepid Radio site and Son of a Patriot Shop and Sword in the Clay and different things like that. Fairylegs.com, PatriotPropaganda.com, all of those things. You can go take a look at all of that stuff at your leisure. And uh, in the meantime, though, let's uh, let's move on with this. There is a a big, I would call it one of the biggest problems we face right now in this country is the indoctrination of our youth. And um, the indoctrination of our youth. And you want to you might want to ask what that's all about. This is something we were being told about. When I was a kid in high school in the late 70s, we heard about the indoctrination of our youth. And uh, <clears throat> for as unpopular as leftism is in this country, um, 
woke language has really become the sub, uh, the the, the uh, unspoken, the unlegislated law of the land these days. The majority of Americans don't believe themselves to be woke, at least by the definition of what wokeism is in America. Oh, you're just not woke, I get told. I go, yeah, I'm plenty awake. Uh, uh, woke has become, you know, the new hip term over the last few years of our, are you woke? Even when Rocky Stucci and John Ward and I were doing the Situation Room, our political talk show, I think uh, the last time we did it was five or six years ago. Uh, wokeism wasn't even a thing back then. So this has risen up in a very quick period out of the gradualism that brought us there. And the majority of Americans aren't woke, yet wokeness has an outsized, outsized influence at the top of academia, at the top of culture, at the top of business, and all across our media, if you look at that. And the result is the power of this narrative vastly outstrips its actual popularity and its general level of acceptance. You notice everybody's got to be woke these days. You can't say anything without checking to see if your wokeness flip is sw switch is flipped. Uh, this is why you get all the apologies out there for things that get said, and all of the all of the the inaneness that comes along with being offended, and all of these things. All of this stuff is a woke issue that we have. I've seen it even on on personal levels when I talked about uh, the thing I have to go to court for on uh, uh, confronting a mom in a local park about her kid's behavior. Parents can't have those conversations anymore and even allow them to get a little heated and then settle down by their natural course and without somebody being so woke that they've got to file charges against you for saying something in a park, in a public place. Uh, the discourse between Americans has become a problem. And especially on official levels, culture, business, media, academia. And the result is the power of this narrative vastly outstrips its actual, its actual popularity. And wokeism's permeation into every aspect of our lives. As parents especially, I'm a parent of six kids, three of them young enough to still be in, in uh, grade school and middle school. Um has the potential not just to reverse all of our hard work as parents raising our kids as upstanding young people, but to strip them of their innocence and the resiliency as well. You tell me that the transgender issues that are going on right now and the things that that small sliver of a community in this country is dictating to the rest of the country you tell me that that does not strip our children of their innocence. You don't need to teach my fourth grader anything about sex. Thank you very much. Or their sexual um, 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 proclivities, whatever you might want to call it. So conservatives have long been worried about indoctrination of young adults on college campuses. Like, remember, we were hearing this when I was going to school. Back in the late 70s, when I went to college for the first time, David Horowitz's indoctrination you, the left's war against academic freedom, came out in 2009. 
And that was 20 years after, uh, almost 30 years after I went to, to college. And Ben Shapiro wrote Brainwashed um, and uh, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth. And that came out in 2010. But what's happening today starts far earlier. Uh, but the ubiquity and the power of the woke worldview extends far past the influences of childhood. And it's from cradle to college. And from the big moments to the small, parents are subject to its influence on our kids. And worse yet, the woke want to turn our children into not just automatons, but active child soldiers in their fight to remake our society at its most basic level. Randall Flagg says over in the chat room, trying to corrupt our kids, no doubt. Yeah. And they don't see it as corruption, which is the funny thing, Randall. Uh, they see it as pulling kids away from an old mode of thinking into the new. You got to enter the woke world. And uh, so uh, all of this indoctrination and this conformity, it comes with the backing of plenty of funding and money uh, after George Floyd's death here in Minneapolis, not far from here, on a 40-minute drive from where I live now, but I grew up in Minneapolis. And it all happened, that whole George Floyd thing took place, in, uh, and the BLM riots took place in the neighborhood where I used to have my studio in one of the office buildings there in the uptown uh, neighborhood of Minneapolis. And uh, after, uh, um, after his death, the ensuing Black Lives Matter protests that erupted in the summer of 2020, uh, companies, organizations, they all reworked their organizational missions to include racial equity and social justice. And, and by the way, equity is different than equality. Everyone is equal, but not everybody has the same outcomes as a base on a basis of their equality. I might be equal to you, but you might be smarter than me in one area. And so you get that better job or you might be better than me in this area and you get the better job, the better pay, whatever. Let's look at it as a job and pay. Does that mean I'm being treated unequally because I don't make as much money as you do? No, it means that equity would mean that we both make the same thing. Everybody's equal and it's all distributed equally. There is no equity and there shouldn't be equity in that sense. That's merit pay, <clears throat> which is a totally different topic. So I'm, I'm hitting it very lightly here. But we all are equal to pursue the same thing, but there's no equity in that somebody might be better than somebody else at something and do better at it. That's the only point I'm trying to make. So brands posted black squares on their social medias and pledges to do better, quote-unquote, do better in hiring, uh, in showcasing diversity, and even if they'd done fine before that. Um, please continue to buy our stuff was actually the unwritten message there. It was the new normal, and we were going to have to get on board or we are going to have to be left behind. And the pageantry was important in all of this. It applied to the pressure on businesses to say all the right things and for organizations to pay up and bring it even. Amazon donated a minimum of 550 copies of the book Stamped, Racism 
anti-racism, and you. And by the way, just so you don't know, I'm going to let you know, anti-racism is racism. And, and in a nation where everything is racist, when everything becomes racist, nothing is racist. So moving on from that, um, <clears throat> there was, uh, uh, they also, Amazon released uh, an accompanying study guide to Wakefield High School in Arlington, Virginia. And in February of 2021, Amazon also funded $8,000 for the fee for one of the book's co-authors, Jason Reynolds, to give a talk virtually to faculty and, and students. And uh, so Amazon paid for that, for him to be able to do that. And various foundations, J.P. Morgan, Chase and Company, Ford Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and others spent more than $23 billion compared to a mere $3.3 billion for the nine years previous. And funding racial equity nonprofits in 2020 and 2021. Now, Open Society Foundations, a group founded by George Soros, whose name we've heard a lot of, is one of the funders of the 1619 Freedom School. We still haven't done a show on 1619, though we've made mention of it. Um, but he's a funder of the 1619 Freedom School, an after-school program based on the widely discredited 1619 series by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And Soros funds a variety of groups that reporter Luke Raziak in 2019 called the Equity Industrial Complex. Now, let me ask you, let's take a, an aside. Do you think George Soros sits at home and, yes, Smithers, we're going to, you know, oh, oh he would do it in his accent, yes, Smithers. Uh, is he an evil man? Uh, is he a man who thinks he's doing good? Uh, is he funding certain things to create havoc? Uh, is somebody who is rich enough to own the world, do they do some of the things out of the goodness of their heart? Maybe some do. Uh, or does he do it because he has the ability to do it and to mess with things? This is the big question I ask about Soros. But what I have found is that he generally is a funder of very far leftist progressive causes. And uh, also of things that we're finding are things that could put wedges between parents and children. Um, and that's a general statement, by the way, folks. I'm not getting into it super deep on George Soros. We can do that another time. But they fund local political races. They pinpoint where equity education can be helpful. And they also provide that equity education themselves. And while the very mention of Soros funding, all of this sounds like a conspiracy theory, Rosiak points out that it's all out in the open. Everybody knows he funds it. It's in the open. And at least three of these groups, Center for Social Inclusion, Policy Link, and the Center for American Progress, are funded by Soros through his foundation to promote open society, <clears throat> according to tax records available through citizenaudit.org. And the obscene money spent on this indoctrination is important for us to know about because it conveys to us as parents, I don't know how many of you are parents out there. Some of you are, some of you aren't. Some of you had your kids a long time ago. Uh, some of you are grandparents. Uh, some of you are aspiring parents. Uh, but uh, it's important because it conveys to, uh, conveys to us as parents and to the public at large 
that this is what we're doing now. And if you don't like it, you're racist, you're sexist, or you're worse. You're not woke. And the conformity they demand is instrumental to the leftist cause. And conformity, we've talked about conformity here before, haven't we? When we were talking about the Constitution and the founding of the state's power to have created the federal government, and that it is important that we are nonconformists to what the federal government wants to do most of the time. The federal government is owned by the states, not the other way around. So we we all hope we'd stand up for what's right, but generally, people want to be accepted by their peers. They're going to cover up their real opinions to ensure that they are. In the 1950s, a psychologist named Solomon Ash conducted the Ash Conformity Experiments. You ever heard of these? Each one had real participants and real and several actors who were all asked to match a line to another line of similar length. The actors would knowingly give the same wrong answer. And about 5% of the participants always went with the group answer. And around a quarter of the participants always gave the correct answer, unswayed by the answers of the actors who deliberately gave the wrong answers. But the rest would sometimes go along and other times not. So a similar experiment conducted on children in 2017 by scientists Emma Flynn, Cameron Turner, and Luca Lane, uh, Geraldo, uh, found that children are sensitive to the contextual cues of the domain in which they are witnessing norms and vary their own conformity based on such cues. That's a quote, end quote. And uh, they also found that younger children were more likely to conform than older ones. A study out of the School of Psychology, Center for Studies of Psychological Application, Key Laboratory of Mental Health, Cognitive Science of Guangdong Province, found this. That's a long name, by the way. Uh, they found this, that sustained conforming behaviors among children in situations of relatively low social pressure uh, in other words, kids wouldn't just conform to the opinions of their peers in the present situation. They would continue to conform to those opinions even the following day and even under minimal social pressure to do so. <coughs> and preference uh, falsification occurs because of societal pressure, even without overt threats. What did we say when we were talking about the Constitution? Why do we conform? Societal pressure, the pressure the government puts on us, the the, the false uh, uh, um, front that they put out that leads the nation to believe that the federal government has the power to do certain things that it does not have. So this is a, a preference falsification occurs because of societal pressure, even without the overt threats. In his 1997 book, Private Truths, Public Lies, The Social Consequences of Preference Falsification, economist Timur Kuren writes about preference falsification, people covering up their true beliefs and instead representing what they know to be the correct opinion to the outside world. Not what they know to be truth, what they know to be to the correct opinion. Um, uh, there was a guy who was Czechoslovakian asked, 
whether uh, he had ever lived under totalitarian rule to experience this kind of preference falsification. And Kieran is not, but he writes, despotic government is not the only source of fear, the only obstacle to overt and candid discourse. A more basic factor is public opinion. Even in democratic societies where the right to think, speak, and act freely enjoys official protection and where tolerance is a prized virtue, unorthodox views can evoke enormous hostility. People often falsify their preference to conform or to risk being ostracized or worse, or as we've heard in recent days, being doxxed, being canceled in cancel culture. You gotta go along with the woke culture so you do not become somebody who is ostracized in society, whether you believe that thing or not. Hey, Unleash Jeremy Hansen, I see you out there. Good to see you. Uh, a judge called me a nonconformist, uh, Jeremy Hansen says. Well, that's good. Uh, uh, I think there should be more nonconformists. I think it is the duty of American citizens to be nonconformist, especially in light of the fact that we have a federal government that was created, a created entity. Let me let me appeal to all of you. I'm going to repeat this. This is a slight uh, rabbit trail I'm taking here that Jeremy Hansen just made me think of. Um, this slight ver uh, uh, rabbit trail I'm dealing with the Constitution. Remember when we talked about this a few weeks ago? How the states created the federal government for a purpose of protecting, helping to protect and secure the rights of the citizens. The federal government, let's look at it this way. Let's say, uh, if you're a religious person, when does the created become greater than the creator? They don't. Um, you have one prime example in the Bible, in the Old Testament. When did the created being try to become greater than the creator himself? Well, we have the story of Lucifer, who wanted to ascend to the throne of the Most High, become and take over, and so on. And what did God do? He says, I, I don't think so. And uh, he kicked him, he booted him out. Wars in heaven. And uh, so using that as, as an example, whether you believe that is a literal thing in your theology, and your faith, or you believe it's a story, it's an illustration I'm using it for right now to say, look, the creator is never less than the created thing. Who created the federal government? The states. The states are the creators of the federal government. The federal government is always subservient to the states. But you would think that it's the other way around by the way our nation looks today. How does the federal government come out and say to schools, how did the federal government get to be the boss of the educational system in America? How can they tell the educational system of America, you will teach these certain things or withdraw funding? Who gave them that power? The states gave them certain kinds of power. That power is retained by the federal government through gradualism. It's retained by the federal government because the states kowtow to it. There is capitulation and there is conformity. And so we are all called to be, as citizens of this country, nonconformists. 
That's just a word on that. And I want you to uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it for a minute. So people often falsify their preferences in order to conform or not risk being ostracized or even worse. How many times have you seen that? How many times have you done that in your life? Uh, you wait to see what the other person is going to be. How many are going to die? And you go, me, because everybody else is. <laughs> you know, I did that in school. Uh, it took me a while before I grew out of that and I became an adult and a, and had a strength to to speak my own mind. But we're seeing it happen in America today. It isn't crazy, guys. We're social creatures. We want to fit in with our friends and our neighbors. And now social media has opened the door to this forced conformity. Just look at the recent things with pandemic, with uh, chemicals being pumped into us, with uh, facial coverings we've had to wear, all of those things. Look at the conformity that took place. And look at the movement you got going now. How much do you see out there right now people saying, because there's trying to start a new one just in time for the elections again. And people are saying, uh-uh, I'm not doing it this time. I'm not conforming to you. And uh, not by your leave. It is quiet in the chat tonight. Did everyone move to another platform? Well, some of them do. Uh, um, I will say I wasn't on all last week. And uh, sometimes... Uh, and then I started a platform, uh, Pearson, that uh, asked people if they donate four bucks a month to get 30 shows. And a lot of people are like, eh, why should I do that? I can just get it free somewhere else. So thousands of listeners uh, that are loyal can suddenly turn disloyal uh, when you ask them, hey, will you pitch in a couple bucks? Help run this show? Help us go places? I've seen that happen. I'm not saying that's the only reason. It might be that I put out also a late notification for tonight. And because I wasn't on all last week, people weren't used to for a week now coming in here. So that's what happens sometimes. Maybe toward the end of this hour, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see that. And there's lots of competition out there as well. Just think of it that way as well. So uh, we do get lots of, of uh, it happens a lot, doesn't it, Jeremy? Uh, Jeremy knows this himself. So... Uh, um, let me move on with this. Uh, people falsify their opinions in order to not be ostracized. We see it happening here. Social media has forced that door open of conformity. And we largely haven't experienced that in this country before. And we know each other's opinions and ideas in a way that we wouldn't have 20 years before now. Even 20 years ago, it was very different than it is now because of social media. We know who stands out as different. We click like to send a message, uh, the message that we're on the same side with you. Oh, yeah, I like that. And we also see who dares to dissent. And uh, I've had people in social media that are friends that uh, they put up something that I vehemently disagree with. And I'm always polite. I'm always professional. I might say something like, hey, I disagree with that. Uh, and, and I brought this illustration up before last summer when the whole thing about the uh, Supreme Court Roe v. Wade thing was leaked ahead of time. And somebody came out and said, you know, uh, um, 
you know, we should do away with the Constitution and so on. And oh, the rights over women's bodies. And oh, oh, woe is all of us women. And I, I said, you know, I came in. This is a friend. This is somebody I posted on her post, post a lot over the years. And I said, you know, um, I said, nobody's going to lose their rights. I said, the federal government, or, or the, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court didn't just take away your right to an abortion. They said, well, it's not something that falls under the purview of the federal government uh, enforcement. This needs to go back where it belongs, the states. So that's all they did. They moved it back to the states. And I got told off by my friend in a big way. Hey, don't come on here and contradict me. And I said, well, I said, everybody else, all your other friends are commenting. Why can't I comment what I think? Well, this is my happy place, and this is where I need to be, and don't you uh, come in here and contradict me. Okay, fair enough. So I've been nice. I've played nice ever since then. I say things when I have to, but not too much. I just stay away from that, that page. Now, why? Because you can say what you want as long as it doesn't contradict somebody, especially in social media. And if it contradicts, you know, if I'm going to put up a post that had that is very controversial topic, I'm going to expect people are going to come in and say something. So I let people know you can come in anytime you want and argue with me. You can debate me. You can disagree with me. Even on this show, you can disagree. That doesn't mean you're going to get kicked off or booted or blocked from my my social media. Just say, if you want to say what you want, say what you want. Be, You have freedom to say what you want, but be prepared to have your point of view challenged by me in a polite way, professional way. So we're seeing it happen all over the place. We know who stands out as different. And children, folks, are no different. They want to please us. They want to please the authorities over them. They're going to repeat the lessons being pushed on them from every direction. Parents and Jeremy Hansen, I could be speaking to you. You're a parent. Uh, you're, a, you're a parent times 15 or 18 or whatever it is now. Um, but uh, you're a parent of a lot of kids. And so you've had to deal with this, uh, this push on parents to do certain things and to conform to certain things. And parents have to identify and stop the onslaught. They have to do it now, not after it's too late to, to resist it. And while wokeness might be new, it's forced conformity, it's targeting children to push obedience to that conformity, that not new concepts, of, uh, it's pushing an obedience to a conformity that aren't new concepts at all. He was the Italian dictator, dictator Benito Mussolini, who, con, who coined the term totalitarian, or totalitario, he said in Italian. And everything within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state, he said. No dissent could be allowed. Individualism was impossible if a truly cohesive culture was to be achieved. Now, let me ask you all who are American citizens. Do you feel that your government, do you believe, do you notice that your government says, 
you are individuals and we're promoting individualism and that you you are it's okay that you dissent with us especially on matters that are not under our purview to enforce do you have the right and the freedom and the constitutionally protected god-given right to speak your mind yes you do mussolini said no dissent could be allowed individualism was impossible if a truly cohesive culture was to be achieved. So the conformity of totalitarian regimes, whether fascist or communist, always had to begin where? With the children. Children were the great hope of the realized utopian future. They belonged to all of society, not just the family to which they were born. And if they could lead the children to righteous thought, they could become the idealized society. And if children could be convinced into the ideas the totalitarians wanted, their parents would follow, was the way of thinking. And if not, the disobedient parent could easily be removed from the equation. Uh, we'll all be obsolete, man, man or woman. You're right, Randall Flagg. Jeremy Hansen says, absolutely. It's a continuing war watching out for and teaching your children to be an individual. Um, I saw, um, who was it? Uh, this just popped into my head. Who's that, uh, the, the, the black show host that does, uh, uh, um, is it Family Feud now? He used to have a talk show. Bald guy with the big mustache, black dude, suit and tie, and uh, uh, Steve Harvey? Is that his name? Carvey? Steve Stevenson, whatever. You'll know who I'm talking about. But I saw an old interview with him, just a clip that went by, and I thought, oh, what's he talking about? And they were talking about, he was talking with, I think, a black minister about, or a black, uh, uh, doesn't matter, politician of some kind, movement leader of some kind about, uh, what we leave our children when we die. And uh, this uh, this minister said to him, I think it was a minister, he said, uh, it's not what we leave our children with, it's what we leave them that they've internalized that's important. And this is what Jeremy was just saying in the chat room. Steve Harvey, that's him. Um. And I don't have the quote exact exactly down, but he says it's not how much money we leave them, it's the character we leave them with. And uh, um, that's where Steve Harvey's response was, well, I guess I'm not going to leave my kids anything then, because I'm going to leave them with character. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to spend it all. That was, it was So, yeah, there's a, there's a certain uh, conformity of totalitarian regimes that are going on out there. I mean, Mussolini's uh, Mussolini's Children, Race, Elementary Education in Fascist Italy by Eden K. McLean, writes on the importance of children and the messaging to children and upholding the fascist state. Quote from the book, Children's magazines were especially adept at highlighting the youth contributions to various fascist programs. This uh, author wrote, Propaganda measures and other initiatives within the education system were used to combat what one author in Motherhood and Childhood, a magazine put out by 
Opera National, a maternia in Fenzia. There is my Italian. Oh, uh, a national network of clinics that delivers children's instructions to parents termed egotistical individualism. That's children. The system was there to fight egotistical individualism. But even in totalitarian societies, people frown on the indoctrination of kids. Efforts to revolutionize childhood were among the most reviled of Soviet experiments in the realm of culture, writes Lisa Kirschenbaum in her book, Examining Soviet Childhood, Small Comrades Revolutionizing Childhood in Soviet Russia. And it's a bright line not to be crossed. And that's why today in America, it's done so insidiously. Nevertheless, revolutionizing childhood under fascism was still very successful for these regimes. The process went on for generations. But separating kids from their parents proved somewhat harder. So in the first years after the Russian Revolution, for instance, the communist Bolsheviks, they built kindergartens at a fast clip. And the idea was to separate children from their families at a very early age. And as Kirschenbaum writes, in general, they generally they anticipated a withering away of the family unit in favor of the state unit, uh, the uh, um, collective unit. But Kirschenbaum notes that by the late 1920s, the Bolsheviks were questioning both the possibility and the wisdom of speeding and withering away of the family. And it soon became clear that far from replacing parents, kindergartens would have to rely on their active material and financial support. So what happened in schools had to be bolstered by what happened at home and vice versa. For so long, parental involvement in education has been seen as the key factor to student success in this country, in America. But as the critical race theory, the CRT battles, gained prominence, that all shifted. Once parents became concerned about CRT in the classroom, the idea that parents should get involved in their kids' education was seen as a right-wing idea. Right-wing nut jobs. When they said that CRT in the classroom uh, and parents wanted to get involved and say, no, not for my kid. That's a right-wing thing now. And we used to know that involving parents in their child's education was a really good thing. In a 2010 study called Parent Involvement in Student Academic Performance, a multiple mediation, uh, mediational analysis by researchers at the, War, at the Warren Alpert Medical School of, of uh, Brown University and the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, <sighs> take a breath after that, noted that Parent involvement in student success had long been a given. Kids are more successful when their parents are involved. Parent involvement in a child's early education, this is a quote, is consistently found to be positively associated with child's academic performance. Specifically, children whose parents are more involved in their education have higher levels of academic performance than children whose parents are involved to a lesser degree. And the influence of parent involvement on academic success 
hasn't only been noted among researchers, but also among policymakers who've integrated efforts aimed at increasing parent involvement into broader educational policy initiatives. However, only 11 years later, in November of 2021, two years ago, Virginia gubernatorial candidate Democrat Terry McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I remember when that was said. I said, are you fucking kidding me? Was my response. Did he just say that? I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. How do you feel about that as a parent? Are you a parent? How do you feel about a gubernatorial candidate of your state would be saying something like, I don't think parents should be involved in telling schools what to teach. Like, excuse me? Uh, the remark was offhand, as McAuliffe would later tell it, and the audience applauded it, though. But parents across the state heard something very different, and they responded at the ballots. And when, and when Republican Glenn Youngkin won that gubernatorial election in Virginia, the outcome was widely seen as revenge of the parents. <laughs> Youngkin's win represented an answer to the question, who do children belong to? And McAuliffe's brazen attempt to cut the parent out of educational process had shocked even liberal parents into action. It's like things you see nowadays with the whole transgenderism, transgender operate, things like that. The things that the school system, I saw a little clip of a hearing and I couldn't tell you the names who were involved, but somebody was being questioned. And he was being questioned by somebody in the Senate saying, are you telling us that you are promoting that children should be withheld from where their, uh, that the parents should not be told where their children are if they are undergoing transgender surgery? And, uh, and the, the answer coming out was only for a short time, you know, and they would, well, once you get the procedure done. You don't want the parent to know. Parents need to know all of this stuff as it's happening. And the school system and the educational system, the government education system, is trying to make sure that you as parents don't have that right. And they're labeling you as right-wing whack jobs if you say, oh, no, not with my kid. This is my kid, not your kid. So... When Youngkin's win, it represented an answer to that question in Virginia. Who do the children belong to? They belong to the parents. And McAuliffe's brazen attempt to cut the parents out of education process had shocked even liberal parents into action. Liberal parents love their kids, too. It's just many times they don't know what they're voting for. They don't understand what they're voting for. So it's not a new concept, by the way, to separate children from their parents for the purpose of indoctrination. It was just shocking that it was being attempted so openly in America and still is. There was somebody uh, um, in one of these studies that remained anonymous, so I don't have a name for you, but they offered a cutting analysis 
of this woke attack on the family. They said, the effort to sow gender and racial confusion among little kids and to impose on little kids a bunch of theories and ways of looking at the world that are totally unnatural and at odds with what little kids understand around them should be situated, I think, as part of the leftist mission to destroy the nuclear family. We've seen this before, haven't we? Soviet Union. The left hates normalcy because normalcy, it's happy. It's bourgeois. And it resists change. It resists revolution. And the great enforcer of normalcy in a society is what? The family. It takes men off the streets, domesticates them in homes, caring for their wives, caring for their children. It creates sacred bonds and sacred loyalties between people that come before politics. Before politics. Before the state. Before anyone else's ideology. It's the ideology of my family. And the left hates this passionately. So their new attack on the normalcy of the family is to convince six-year-olds not to believe what they see. You have a penis, but really you're a girl inside. You see mommy and daddy, but really that's there's no such categories. And instead, that's a gender spectrum. Uh, what does this woke attack on the family dynamic do to children? Kids are left confused and damaged by this. And that's because the left, well, that's what they want. And that's what the left wants us, both because they hate it and when kids see normalcy as normal, and because they know that the revolution will fail unless they can build a large class of people in our society who believe that they hate the way things are and that it would be good to tear down established ways of living. Now, this is supposed to be a bloodless revolution, by the way. This is the revolution from within. Promoting alienation and grievance has always been a central part of the groundwork for leftist revolution. In Mao's China, for example, kids were instrumental in pushing the totalitarian state. In a 1995, so we're talking 30 years ago, piece for Los Angeles Times, writer Roan Tempest lays out how the family stood in the way of that. It says in in, in, uh, Roan's article, the late Chinese leader Mao Zedong, although himself a member of the strong Hunanese family clan, realized that political reform was not possible unless people placed the interests of the state above the interests of the family, which up to that point had been by far the most powerful institution in China. Communist leaders were instructed to draw a clear line between themselves and their families. During the Cultural Revolution, Youths were encouraged to love Chairman Mao more than their parents, and they were sent to the countryside to learn from the peasants. Parents were attacked by their own children in struggle sessions. 
collective daycare centers became the norm. End of quote. So indoctrination was happening at every stage of childhood. Little Red Guards were the children of China's Communist Party, foot soldiers in the idea that the state should be paramount. And this devotion amounted to children turning in their parents. Zhang Hongbing was 16 when he turned in his mother for criticizing Chairman Mao. He called for his own mother to be shot as a counter-revolutionary. He last saw her as she knelt on stage in the hours before her execution. So in the Soviet Union, the communists kept trying to push the idea that family was secondary to the state. Communist youth groups were a staple of Soviet Russia. Children would become little Octoberists at seven seven years old, October, the, the revolution. Young pioneers at nine, and at 14 they would join the Komsomol, short for, let's see if I can pronounce this, Komunistekchesky Soyez Molodjoy Noji, or the Communist Soviet Youth. (laughs) I think I butchered, completely butchered my Russian there. So kids were taught to be like the hero child Pavlik Morozov, who had discovered his father was hoarding grain and informed on him to the authorities. The authorities in this propaganda tale was told to children to illustrate expectations. But according to a Los Angeles Times piece from 2002, the story wasn't, as many believed, entirely made up. There was a real boy named Pavlik, whose death was repurposed as a heroic tale. Pavlik's story wasn't really a fairy tale, though. A real 13-year-old boy named Pavel Morozov was killed along with his little brother at the out, on the outskirts of his Siberian village in September of 1932. Four members of his family, his grandfather, grandmother, cousin, and godfather, were convicted of murders in a show trial two months later and shot. And so within weeks of his death, Pavlik became a powerful icon in the new pantheon of communist saints, a child martyr worshipped for his feat of heroism of informing on his father hoarding grain. So statues of Pavlik were erected all over Russia. Poems and songs were written about him. He was referred to as Pioneer Number 001. And children were taught to be like Pavlik, to put the state above all, even their family, especially their family. And it was an understandably powerful lesson. Do the right thing, listen to authority, believe what we believe, act how we want you to act, and you'll be celebrated like Pavlik. Don't, and you'll end up in a ditch like his accused family members. Looking to see how much time I have left for radio. Radio station, we got about uh, a little less than four minutes left with you. Let's see what we can get to. Um, In a Forbes magazine article uh, writing about her Soviet childhood, Katya Saldak recalls this. As part of our school curriculum, we dis... And by the way, do you see where we're going with this? We're starting to make some clicking, some comparisons to what we're seeing the rudiments of in America. As part of our school curriculum, we discuss the young martyr, Pavlik, praising his bravery and his loyalty to communism. 
absorbing his story through poems and school books. And as Saldak believed that uh, the propaganda would write uh, propaganda and would write poems uh, to the great leader Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov was his name. He became Lenin. And a year before the collapse of the Soviet Union, Saldak was feeling jaded. Things were not going as swimmingly as they had, uh, they had to pretend they were going. And one day, moved by the rebellious sentiment in the air, he says, I arrived at school with my red pioneer tie. I had a lousy pupil that, uh, had I been a lousy pupil, I might not have been such a big deal to our teachers. But in the seventh grade, I had a reputation as a straight A student, an activist, and my teacher publicly lynched me in order to teach others a lesson. You are a flaky, slimy person, the teacher repeatedly told me in front of the entire class. Your mother and your aunt were good, trustworthy individuals. They had attended the same school. But you didn't take after them, the teacher continued. You're a traitor. You have betrayed our pioneer organization, our fatherland, the teacher said. And as her story, Solduck's story illustrates, stepping out of line is always severely punished under totalitarianism. It has to be. If someone is seen as doing their own thing, being independent, thinking for themselves, it might lead to others doing the same. And a breakdown of society will follow. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't pay attention to my clock close enough. And uh, we just went off the air over on the radio station. So if you were listening on radio, I hope you can come and join us over in the chat room, over on the YouTube channel. Um, I can I can finish this section, but it's really long. And uh, uh, I got a lot of information there. So we're going to pick this up next time. But being an independent thinker, having your parents come in and tell the school, no, you will not teach that to my kids. I will teach my kids. So we can see by history the totalitarian regimes and we're not done with this yet we'll pick this up again but uh, uh randall flag says that's the real reason for the migrants i believe it might be jeremy hansen said that would end up with someone getting seriously hurt if it was my kid yeah same here brother um so let's do this let's take a little bit of a break i would say goodbye to the radio audience, but you're already gone. Hopefully you've come over and joined us over in the chat room over here. Radio audience, live long and prosper. And uh, the rest of you, let's uh, go out to break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with the captain's cabin. All of you sit tight. We'll be back. Join us every weeknight at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. The Intrepid Radio Program, a Scotty Roberts Productions broadcast. Subspace, dare to wonder.